The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see you here tonight. I mentioned a couple weeks ago when I last spoke on Wednesday night that we'll be taking a first several weeks of the year to reflect on formal sitting practice. Just try to better understand what the intention is, how it works, how to work with the typical distractions or challenges that arise for people who take up a meditation practice. And then from that point on, maybe sometime in early February, we'll start looking at uh, mindfulness and daily life issues. And that will be the basic theme for a number of months. We'll see how far we go with that. So the first uh, week in January, I spoke about the importance of knowing our intention. So not just one time, but every time we sit, and even while we're sitting, just to understand why we're doing what we're doing. And it's not something we need to think a lot about, but it has to be alive in us in some way. And the intention then is connected with our action. There's something that flows out of the intention. And so let's just come back to that right now. And our intention in meditation practice is not, shouldn't be really that different than our intention in life. So what we need to do though is we have to cut through all of the specific content that's going on in any moment of our meditation or our life and get to the deepest aspiration. Something like, uh, I just want to be happy, right? Most of us can relate to that intention. I just want to be at ease. I just want to be free of fear. I want to be content. Or whatever, however we might language it, but... <clears throat> There's some basic movement, compassionate movement, deep or not so deep, that we need to learn to recognize where here in this heart, there's this wanting to take care of ourselves, wanting to be happy, wanting to be free of suffering, free of stress. And then <clears throat> recognizing that basic, wholesome intention, aspiration, we then let it, because we recognize it as trustworthy, I mean, that's a trustworthy intention to have, then that's not enough, of course, because we could have that intention and then have the thought, and there's nothing to do about it, you know, I'm just a victim to circumstance, and we can give up. So we want to then practice, you know, paying attention and learning the best way to channel that, uh, to act out that intention. We want to bring that intention into action. And so I talked about the most important way to take that intention into action is to recognize the present moment, because that's where change really happens. So we have to feel that impulse to want to take care of ourselves. And then 
we want to understand that that taking care of ourselves, that being free of stress, has to be reflected on right in the present moment. It can't be like theoretical or abstract. How can I be happy in life? See, that that's abstract. Or how can I be free of tension in life? I'm not saying it's not valuable at times to reflect in that more abstract way about our life. But it's not meditation practice. It's not mindfulness practice. Mindfulness practice, by definition, means that we're connecting with some wholesome intention and and through a process of of insight we realize the way to really uh, ignite to bring to life that intention is to reflect on it in the context of the present moment like if we're interested in freedom then we open our heart open the mind to the present moment and there is the dynamic of freedom and not freedom, right? Stress and not stress. It's being acted out moment by moment. That's where we'll actually be able to realize freedom from stress, freedom from suffering. Because you know how it is. We can think about, you know, how can I be happy in life? And I can have quite beautiful thoughts about how to live in a way where I'd be happy. But then I wake up and realize I'm still, as one teacher said, this old, I'm still this old, hateful self. Nothing's changed. We can have quite lofty ideas. But that doesn't change our conditioning, having lofty ideas. What changes our conditioning, our habit energy, is this present moment awareness. That's really where the change happens. So the reason I began with that a couple of weeks ago, and Gail talked a little bit about that and started getting more concrete last week when she covered for me, <clears throat> I was out of town. The reason I started there is um, there's a basic uh, truth in spiritual life, which is it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, but we have to begin with wisdom. As Ajahn Tomato, one of the well-known Western teachers, he's a Buddhist monk from Seattle, but is the abbot of a monastery in England now. And he says, uh, if you start off with ignorance, you end up with ignorance. So if we, if our practice, our, our decision to sit down and meditate this morning or tomorrow morning, if that comes from some self-centered or ignorant point of view, then we're only going to the only thing that can arise from that practice, even though it might seem good and all our friends might think we're doing something special because we meditate, but if, if the intention behind our meditation is to get something for Mark, like for Mark to get some peace, even something that sounds really good. See, but that's an abstraction. Mark, right? That's a thought, a concept. It's a pretty involved concept, the thought of ourselves, right? So Mark wants peace. So that's basically a story in the mind. And if our activity of meditating is flowing out of that story, then what we'll be doing when we're meditating 
is looking for peace, right? For Mark. So we have this idea of peace, and then we're going to sort of be looking for that peace. And that doesn't change us, because we're not more deeply understanding who Mark is and what peace is. We have an idea of who Mark is and what peace is, and then we're looking to make it happen. And almost always we get frustrated and probably eventually give up our practice. So instead of that, we have the same basic intention, which is to want to be free, to want to be happy or peaceful. But we've been given a particular instruction, like, like from the Buddha, for example. And he says, OK, that's a, you, you found that wholesome intention. Now, what you do with it is you go to the present moment. And you know, we can't just go to the present moment once. We have to do it over and over again. That's really the work of meditation practice, is showing back up in the present moment. No matter how many times we get distracted, we're lost in our thoughts, carried away by various reactive patterns. The only real work in meditation practice is to remember this intention to be free of suffering, or however you want to language it. And then, that's not enough. And then, to rediscover the present moment in that moment. Oh, this is how it is here and now. This is where suffering arises. This is where peace arises, here and now. Everything else is just thoughts in the mind. So if we want to learn something we don't already know about peace or about how suffering comes to be, it has to be realized in the present moment. It's the only place where spiritual insight arises. We could think for decades about the teachings of the Buddha or some other wise person, and we might learn a lot, and we might become very articulate about this person's teachings, and we might be able to analyze the mind in various ways, and even to sort of analyze other people and what's going on. But we won't be a happier person. We won't be a wiser person. Wisdom, spiritual wisdom, and freedom arises from understanding the nature of the mind in the present moment, not abstractly as a concept, thinking about the mind. Now, after sitting, after a moment of being in the present moment, whether it's formal sitting practice or in our life, we might have some thoughts about it or want to talk to a friend who also meditates about that insight that, that arose in the present moment. So I'm not saying we're never going to think about meditation or our insights. It can be quite useful to do that. But thinking alone doesn't do any good unless there's insight, and insight arises in the present moment. And it's okay if this feels a little like you don't quite get it, because that's a good sign. What I thought uh, we could dig into a little bit more tonight is just to get a sense of what is the difference between a distracted mind and an un- or non-distracted mind. 
And like we can just, fortunately we have a mind right now, each of us, we have a mind, so we can just look at our mind and just pose the question, just throw it out there in the space of the mind, is the mind currently distracted or not? Now if you immediately start to think about that, you might get lost in the thoughts about whether you're distracted or not. But what does it mean? Just reflect as I'm talking. What does it mean to be free of distraction? What is a distracted mind? What is an undistracted mind? Or going back to what I said earlier, what does it mean to be present? What does it mean to be not present? To be mindful, to be not mindful. So some thoughts? Anybody have some comments or responses to that? Maybe a little louder, Mona. Um, the word awake comes to mind. To be awake to things that come up, things that come and go. You know, to, to notice, I guess, to notice what's happening in the moment, to be awake to that point. Yeah, thanks. Other thoughts or comments? Mm-hmm. I think it's also I think that's a really good quality to bring out, that nimbleness. It's like a, a mindful mind, a, a mind or heart that's fully present, isn't surprised by what arises. We get surprised when we think we know what's supposed to happen, which means we have an idea. Like, for example, if Edwin stood up and started dancing right now, <laughs> <laughs> It might surprise us, or, but if we're fully present, nothing surprises us. It doesn't mean that the thought won't arise in the mind, well, that's unusual that Edwin stood up and is dancing, but we won't be shocked. The mind won't be disturbed or thrown off by it. One of the things uh, on retreat practice, you know, when the room is really quiet, or maybe even tonight, when you when I sneezed, maybe... Maybe you didn't remember it, <laughs> or it says something. Or maybe it was a shock for you. <clears throat> it shocked you out of your distraction, right? That's, that's usually what happens is we're, we're lost. We're in a different universe, and then somebody does something loud like that, and all of a sudden we're sort of like the rubber band's been stretched, and boom, we're back in the present moment. But if the mind's fully present, because there's no attachment to what's being known, like when we're thinking about something, the mind's really glommed onto it. We're really here and here, locked in, one thought to the next. And so when we get woken up, pulled out of that, it can be sort of disorienting. But when we're mindful, there's that nimbleness that you were talking about. 
And it takes no... Because the, a mindful mind is, is not only waking up, but also letting go at the same time. There's no stickiness. So when the, the loud sound arises, that's just what's known next. And there's no problem. The transition is no problem. So that's one of the ways we can notice whether the mind is fully present or whether the heart-mind is mindful or not by whether it gets disturbed by change or not, whether it has that nimbleness. And now both of you pointed to that. Mona, after she said the word awake, talked about the ability to notice, to just know what's happening, but not getting stuck by anything that's happening. Anything else come to mind, Edwin? Uh, right along this uh, issue of nimbleness, uh, I just noticed sometimes, in particular tonight, that there's kind of an oscillation that's, that's happening, like a pendulum, like I'm being aware, and then words come, and it's almost like playing. Like, well, let's be mindful, but at the same time, let's let the thought stream kind of yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure I, I know exactly what you mean, but see, if this is what how I understand what you just said. I don't know if you heard Edwin in the back, but he, he was saying how sometimes there's a certain awareness, a, a, a continuity of mindfulness, but there also seems to be some activity of the mind with language, some thoughts, playing with what's going on, what's being known or seen. And uh, that's a, the way I interpret that, like translate that into my own experiences, that um, there's a transition in our practice at some point. Usually in the beginning of our practice, no matter what the instruction is or what the teacher says to us, normally we tend to be averse to thoughts. Thoughts are bad. And so we, we kind of, uh, in our minds, think of mindfulness or meditation practice as being the absence of thoughts. And, but it's not true. It's just, but, it, but because our thoughts are, usually when thoughts are there in the beginning, we do get lost in them. So that's why we think thoughts are bad. But thoughts aren't inherently bad. They're just phenomena, just like the sound of a clap is a phenomena, the sound of traffic the sensations of the breath coming in and out. It's just phenomena, mental or physical phenomena that can be known. But so later on then in practice, we begin to wonder about that. Like, well, because we, we see that uh, thinking that thoughts are bad is itself a thought and it's stressful and gets in the way of being mindful. So then we begin to experiment, and we're a little confused. Some doubt usually comes in in practice, which is probably a good sign, because we're beginning to explore. We're going beyond a superficial understanding, an inevitable but superficial understanding of mindfulness, to a deeper understanding. And so we have to begin to give that part of the mind freedom to do what it does, which is think, and analyze, and compare, and do creative thinking, and stupid thinking and every kind of thinking to just give permission for that mind to unwind, to do its thing, to spin out. And we discover that, one, sometimes we discover it's not a problem, that 
that thoughts can be coming and going, almost like in the background, which you suggested, Edwin, that, that the mind, it isn't disturbing the mind. There isn't some part of the mind glomming on, holding on, clinging, attaching, identifying with the thoughts. It's just thought, thoughting, <laughs> thoughting happening. And, uh, and the, the interesting thing is, as the mind gets quieter and quieter, those thoughts generally can be more and more enticing. Partly because the, the energy begins to build. So it's like the, um, the voltage that the thoughts have, that that part of the mind has, is much stronger. So the images that can come into the mind or the creativity of the thoughts that can come into the mind can be quite astounding. You know, we, we finally figure out how to organize our drawer. <laughs> <laughs> or what to do with our life, or whether I should marry somebody or not, or whatever else. That you know, all of a sudden there's like this clarity in the mind, and of course we really want to get identified then with that thought. Or there will be some despicable thought, you know, something that will kind of tend to grab the attention in a way that uh, is the cause for attachment or identification to come. So we just get challenged to just let thoughts be thoughts. And, you know, we can always go back to that more superficial understanding of practice where we sort of take a hold of the anchor, like the breath or the sensations in the body, as a way of repressing thought. That's not a bad technique. It's just not the end of practice. So all of us at some points in our practice, we need to practice that way, where we're sort of taking hold of a mantra, a prayer, the breath, sensations, walking, yoga, stretching. We're taking hold of some relatively concrete object as a way of repressing unwholesome thinking. That's really, it's like uh, meditation 101, but it's just the beginning. But we're going to cycle through that beginning state all the time. So even if you've been practicing for decades, there are times when we're using a technique to repress unwholesome thinking, where the mind would just be obsessing or worrying or planning in a way that's not useful. But then once the, the whole system calms down and there's less of that tendency to obsess in an unwholesome way, then our practice needs to get just as subtle as the mind is. So when the mind is gross, we use a gross practice. When the mind is really subtle, we need to use a very subtle practice. And one of the problems in, in practice is that we tend to keep using a gross practice even though the mind has settled down and it's much subtler. And then we don't understand why we're, tension is building. And it's because the gross practice creates tension, but it's just less tension than would be created by just letting the mind do what it wants to do. So that's a sign. Like if you feel like you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing, but it's just tight, then you're, there's too much willful doing in your meditation practice, and you need to weed that out, even though at other times you might need it again. But at that moment, in those moments, you need to weed that out. Thanks, Edwin. Any other thoughts about distraction and non-distraction? Mm -hmm. Tom? A little, little bit louder, Tom.
being in the now. More comfortable with the... Yeah, we're going there tonight. We're gonna, I'm going to bring, go, come back to this point, but I'll just say something briefly now, which is um, we have to cultivate a taste for equanimity. I mean, we don't have to, but the, <laughs> but we want to. We find that we want to. It's like you may you may think you're more comfortable with the demons, and in a sense, it's really true because we're used to agitation. You know, just just think about what we were into when we were teenagers, the kind of music we listened to, the kind of lifestyle we had. Now, <clears throat> most of us would not like that now, all that worry that we had, that social tension that existed. I mean, maybe it's like that for you now, but <laughs> thankfully for me, it's not as bad as it was. <laughs> but <clears throat> but sometimes, right, even, even now, sometimes we are attracted because we, we sort of romanticize that agitation as being sort of, I was alive, you know, I felt alive. <clears throat> it's called suffering. <laughs> <laughs> suffering is an, is an agitated state. <clears throat> but the thing, from the point of view of, the, of an ego, of a self-centered being, what, the, what an ego wants more than anything is to feel real. And when we're suffering, it's a very self-centered state. Suffering is a very self-centered state. Ease and peace and calmness and tranquility is a less congealed state. So it takes a little getting used to because we've come to uh, equate this agitation, this self-centered contraction with being real. So we're a little frightened when things start to soften and the boundaries aren't so clear. And, uh, and we go from like a very defined me, like, you know, this is who I am, to not knowing, not having clear definitions about what's what. And uh, so the ego, that, that part of the conditioning that, want, that is used to living through a self-centered view is going to be threatened. And it's going to, like in my response to Edwin uh, about how thoughts will arise when the, we need to allow thoughts to come. So there are going to be these very seductive thoughts that are in one way or another going to uh, create doubt about the value of equanimity and peace and ease. And the important thing is just to see those are just thoughts. Now, you're not saying that it's wrong. It's important not to tell yourself that's wrong. Equanimity is good. You don't want to take sides. You want to let the whole thing work itself out, take its natural course. So it's, this is, again, like where we, we abstract the spiritual life. Oh, yeah, equanimity is good. So then we look for equanimity, and then agitation is bad. And see, that, that, that's itself setting up a problem. But well, the whole system will move in the direction of peace and equanimity if we get out of the way. And getting out of the way is just coming into the present moment with awareness.
open awareness in the present moment, the system will move towards equanimity. And as it moves towards equanimity, two things happen. One thing that happens is that equanimity gets challenged by the part of the mind that's afraid of that. And the other thing that happens is we begin to see that equanimity is our true home, that peace is our true home, and it feels really good to be home. That putting that burden down of being a self, of needing this and afraid of that, it's really nice. But both happen. We, get, we, we have moments where we, the confidence or the trust in that letting go, in that movement towards equanimity is you know, really a deep insight, a deep sort of truth that this is home. And very seductive thoughts come that cause us to doubt it. And it's really important to understand, well, that's just a thought, and uh, it may be true or it may not be true, but I'll return to the present moment and just feel, just know this thought as it is, as a thought, as an emotion that's associated with that thought, and just be present with it to include that without needing to resolve it as being right or wrong. Thanks for bringing that up. I want to uh, take a little bit of time, and then we'll go back to discussion, to talk about how to work, how to use an anchor in practice. So in a sense, continuing with what Gail started last week, giving some really concrete instructions for us all to play with uh, in our sitting practice, our daily life practice. And so we have this thing called an anchor that is just something good to know. and. The anchor, as uh, I said earlier, it, it will shift. So when our mind is relatively gross, we want a very gross anchor. And when the mind is subtle, the anchor can be just as subtle. Ultimately, the anchor is the present moment. That's it. We don't define the anchor any more than being with things as they are. But in the beginning, it's really nice to have a concrete anchor like you know, doing the body scan that we did at the beginning. It's like, basically, we're telling the mind what to do in order to keep it from doing what it would normally do, which is just sort of spin, you know, analyze, compare, judge, worry, plan. So we give it something to do that keeps it in the vicinity of the present moment, that makes it more likely that we'll have moments of being present as we move the attention through the body or just sit with the physical experience of sitting, or even a more refined physical anchor is feeling the breath move. In the Buddhist system, the body means the five physical senses, so that also includes hearing is a really nice concrete anchor for meditation practice, especially when there's a lot of pain in the body and you can't be with it skillfully, then you might just open to hearing and let that be the anchor for your attention for some time. Or you can even, although this is a little bit more challenging for most people, use seeing. So just uh, having the eyes, sitting with the eyes open or partially open, and just soft gaze at whatever it is that's in front of you, the floor, the back of the person in front of you. So you're just receiving, not as that's the floor, that's a person, but just the shape, color, form, you're just receiving that, just like you'd be receiving sounds or receiving the experience of physical uh, sensation. 
you're just receiving the visual experience as a flow. And this is really important <clears throat> with any anchor. An anchor isn't really a thing, at least in the way we teach it. There are other instructions, like if you're, if you're developing meditation practice more as a concentration practice than as an insight practice, you can create a concept, like a mantra or an, a visual image, that doesn't really change. You're kind of reestablishing that sound or that phrase or that prayer or that image over and over again. And because it's a concept, it has some uh, permanency to it. But generally, the way that uh, we practice here, the, the basic instruction, although there's nothing wrong with training in uh, a more concentrated, uh, with a more concentration emphasis, there's nothing wrong with that. But we generally use anchors that are just part of nature, which means that they're changing. So even if you use thoughts as an anchor, which is generally not a useful anchor in the beginning because they're so seductive, we get identified with it, the thoughts are a stream. One of the things, one of the characteristics of all phenomena is that they change. So they have this characteristic of being a, a stream. So when you used hearing as an anchor for your practice, then notice how it is a stream. Like there is a stream of knowing uh, the experience of hearing. It's not like you can actually land on hearing. It's constantly changing. It's the same with sensation. Even though it may feel like, you know, when you, when you look at a sensation like your sitting bones against a chair or cushion, that may feel like a fixed thing, but it's only because we're not paying close attention. The more closely we pay attention to something ordinary like the butt against the cushion, the more we see it's a, a flow of sensations being known. It's never the same. No, it may I'm not saying it's like wildly different, but there's, there's a dance, there's a movement to the sensation. And this is true with whether we're paying attention to the breath, or any object. So even though we use a word like anchor, it makes it sound like one thing. You know, and once we get a hold of the anchor, we're golden. That's it. We can just relax. <laughs> but but we learn an important thing, probably the most important thing about meditation practice, especially in the beginning, which is the the very unique kind of effort that's required. And it's not a muscular kind of effort. It's an effort in remembering. And what we're remembering is to show up in the present moment over and over again. And we have to do that moment by moment because the anchor is constantly changing. The object we're meditating on, it's constantly changing. So if we don't reestablish presence in the next moment, if we're still lingering with the past moment, we've gone from knowing things as they are to remembering, which is a mental activity. But the thing is, we're not aware that it's a mental activity, so we're not actually knowing the present moment. We're lost in the thought that I'm knowing the present moment because I'm remembering what the butt felt like a minute ago or a second ago or half a second ago. So we, we have to be awake, as Mona was suggesting. That wakefulness is that, uh, it's like a not forgetting. 
So this is something you might, I mean, there's different ways to talk about it, but if, you, if it's useful hearing it this way, you might want to remember this, that the most important thing in the beginning of practice is to know what right effort is. And right effort is not forgetting the present moment or not forgetting that this is how it is now, here and now. This is what's alive, what's happening now. This is how it is now. So that we're not... Um, and, the, and the thing is, if like if I'm with my breath, and then I and I kind of slide into I'm in in uh, paying attention to the thoughts of my breath about my breath, but I'm not aware of that. That can that can have a lot of the qualities of meditation. We we might feel kind of tranquil, thinking about breathing, but thinking that we're paying attention to the breath, but we're actually just thinking or imagining our breath. And this happens a lot, you know. We were actually watching. It's almost like in our mind we're watching a video of the breath. You might, you might recognize it. It's good to recognize this experience because that's called seeing. Right? We're seeing an image. We're not actually feeling the sensations of touching, or the feel, feeling or sensations of the belly expanding and contracting. So that's a mental activity. And then if we want to be mindful of that, then we're mindful. This is just a mental activity being known in the present moment. So a lot of times the anchor goes from uh, uh, where, we, where we actually are awake to where we kind of move towards a trance state where we're not really awake to the present moment, but the mind is fixed on some image or concept or stream of thought, and it's less distracted than it is in normal life. And so there is some tranquility that comes with that concentration on that trance state, for example, and then at the end of the 30 minutes or 45 minutes, we feel somewhat calm, like we've had a nice vacation, or just, you know, we may even feel sleepy and dull, but it feels nice because we're less agitated than we were when we started. But the thing about that kind of practice is we won't learn anything. So even though it's not bad, it's not dangerous, well, the only danger is we'll think we're doing what's best for us, but we won't actually be doing what's best for us. So you want to really be on the lookout. And the way to, to avoid, we're all going to fall, we all fall into trance-like states all the time. It's just like the big uh, challenge in meditation practice is spacing out in different ways that are somewhat pleasant. Because if they were unpleasant, we'd wake up. That's a good thing about unpleasant states. They tend to kind of like... Uh, bring up the thought, I'm not doing something right. <laughs> so, but the trouble with these trance-like states are that they feel good. So you could stay there for decades in your meditation practice unless somebody points out that what's going on. And we can really help ourselves by remembering this right effort, that we need to make an effort. And it, it, the effort isn't to stick with the anchor the effort, it's, the effort is much more, involves much more wisdom than it does this sort of brute strength, like sticking with the object. It's more like brute strength. I'm going to stick with the breath. I'm going to stick with the body, no matter what. It's, it's much more subtle than that, the effort that's required. It's this remembering 
this is how it is. There's really no strength that's required because the knowing is an inherent thing going on. We don't have to make an effort to know the present moment. The effort we have to make is not to get lost in thought or lost in the conditions. The effort to stay awake. But our biggest habit of all is to get lost. We want to absorb into things, especially stories. We like to get lost into stories about who I am or what's going on or some fantasy because we feel somewhat safe in stories and we feel exposed and vulnerable when we're awake because we actually are exposed and vulnerable. <laughs> so we should feel that way when we're awake. It should feel kind of raw when we're awake. It's part of this nimbleness. You know, it's like uh, uh, like a, a certain vigilance, not with tension, but like, like, wow, wow, this is the breath, this is the body. Now, it doesn't end there. It's just that uh, once we get uh, cultivate a taste for that, we learn to relax in that space of awareness, that space of the present moment. We learn that, we learn to be fearless there. But at first, it's a, it's a new thing. And there's, there's real resistance to it. So keep that in mind. So whatever your practice is, whether you're somebody who does a body scan meditation usually, or whether you usually, after settling in, go to your breath, or whether you work a lot with your posture and just the sensations of the body sitting as your anchor, or whether you work with sounds, or whether you incorporate some words with any of those things, like uh, bring some words to your breathing, so in, out, or rising, falling, or calm, ease, the important thing is to remember that that particular uh, technique needs to be infused with this very special effort, which is remembering or not forgetting the present moment. This is how it is. So it's less about the, the particular object that you're using, although that doesn't mean it isn't really useful to have a basic object that you work with. It really is useful. Don't skip around. One day do the breath. The next day use sounds. I mean, you can use sounds from time to time, but have one particular object that you work with because your mind will get to like it. It will really like to go there. It will become a really good friend. It will start to feel at home with the breath or with sensations of the body or with hearing. So, but... It's not about the breath. It's not about the sensations of the body. It's not about hearing. It's about the present moment. So we're using the anchor to help us remember this is how it is now. So that way, if that particular anchor, that particular object gets interrupted, it's not a problem. Because then that interruption, that distraction itself, 
It's just what's being known in the present moment. That's that nimbleness that's really not going to be offended or distracted by other objects that arise. Could be the most uh, angelic image in the mind, but we're not going to get identified or attached. It's just a thought. It's just a beautiful thought, a beautiful image, or a very despicable memory about what we did. That can arise and that can just be allowed to be too. That's just another thing being known. And then the emotion that's associated with it, well, that's just another thing being known. So we're just remembering to include everything. That's really what it means to be present. It's just to allow everything to be what it is already. So it's that inclusivity. We just allow it to be what it is. Because it is this way. The present moment is already this way. So any kind of not knowing, not being open to it, is called suffering. Even if we're not aware that we're suffering. If we're not fully exposed and open to the present moment, we are in a state of stress. Just because we don't know we're in a state of stress doesn't mean we're not in a state of stress. <laughs> so I'll, I'll leave it here so we have some more time to check in with one another. If other people have comments about what you're noticing in your practice or questions about the talk or responses to the talk tonight, what comes to mind? Mm-hmm. What's your um, name? Josh. Josh. Um, what do you do if uh, you have one predominant sensation but your anger is another? If you want to anger, if you want to focus on your breath, but say you have a headache? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, does it make more sense to sort of focus on the sensation, the most predominant sensation, or to really anger yourself? Yeah, good question. And the answer really depends on, you have to assess kind of the quality of awareness. Is it gross or is it subtle? If it's gross, then you, you would uh, tend to do more of the going back to the anchor. Because if, if your mind, if the awareness isn't developed much at that point in your practice, then if you go to the pain in your head, you probably will react to it. So it won't be a good anchor. But at another point in your sit, maybe even that same sit, or another day, or 10 years later, your pain is an excellent, even very subtle pain, even really intense pain, can be an excellent object for meditation, one of the best, because it's so clear. You know, it's like a ringing, look at me, look at me. (laughs) So it's very easy for the mind to go there, and as long as the awareness is pure, which means it's less of a tendency to react to the pain, then you you get this sort of beacon so the mind can really uh, hone in, become very intimate because of the intensity of that experience of pain. It can really, uh, the mind can develop very deep states of concentration very quickly, which is why pain is such a wonderful anchor. But we have to have the wisdom to be able to be with the pain. So if that's a, so. just assess. If you can be with the pain, then use that. Drop your traditional anchor that you've been working with and go to what's predominant. But if in going to what's predominant causes the mind to consistently slide off into some reactivity, then go back to your traditional anchor or to some anchor that you can be skillful with. You can just allow it to be what it is without trying to manipulate it or think about it or whatever. Thanks, Josh. Greg? Um, can the 
loving kindness statements be thought of as an anchor? Yeah. The, the thing about the loving kindness, they, they're more like one of those concentration techniques that I was talking about early because they're kind of exclusive. When we do the loving kindness practice and we're repeating a phrase in the mind like, may all beings be happy. Let's say we are just repeating that over and over again and really connecting with the feeling associated with those words. In that practice, we're really trying to exclude everything from it. But you can, uh, you know, you can experiment with that, like use it and develop some sort of ease with it, and then start to relax it so that you start to include things, like you start opening your attention to more than just that wish, may all beings be at ease, and you just start feeling your body, for example. And you might continue that, but maybe you'd shorten the phrase to ease, right? Or love, or peace. And so here's a, this is like a middle ground between concentration practice and mindfulness practice. And I think it's a really useful place to explore, especially when your mind is gross and, and agitated. Then use those, these are like, uh, we need to know this medicine. And there's so many different kinds of skillful means or different kinds of medicine, and we want to know them. And what works for one person may not work for another person. So it's, we have to know what works for us. And to repeat 